I'm turning this evening to the book of the prophet Zechariah, chapter 8 and verse 20. Zechariah, chapter 8 and verse 20. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, it shall yet come to pass that there shall come people and the inhabitants of many cities. And our subject is Christ and his work in Zechariah. And hopefully we shall complete uh, the book of the prophet Zechariah just looking at some of the highlights of Christ and his work and the church that are here. And first of all, we are uh, considering the calling of the Gentiles, a great theme of several prophets, particularly Isaiah, as you know, and here in Zechariah in verse 20. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, it shall yet come to pass. Now, the temple is under construction. It's, uh, as the people can see already, because the footings and the groundwork has been laid out, perhaps by now some of the walls are beginning to be erected, and they can see that it's much smaller, the very elderly among them can see that it's much smaller than the temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians. And they're inclined to be very pessimistic and discouraged. And also they cannot see how it will ever be completed because of the hostility, the animosity of the nations immediately round who are continually sending marauding parties into Jerusalem to obstruct the work and to pillage and so on. And uh, so there's a general gloom an atmosphere of unbelief in the worthwhileness of this whole project. And however, it's vital and it's necessary that the temple should be constructed and that Jerusalem should be restored and preserved because prophecy is to be fulfilled, God's purposes are to be brought to pass, and Christ has to come, and he has to be born, and he has to minister in this place, and the events of redemption have to be carried out in Jerusalem, and the word of God has to go forth throughout the world at the beginning of the gospel age from Jerusalem. All this has been prophesied by others also so many times. These things must come to pass. And so it is the purpose of God to end the period of discipline and to begin the reconstruction. Sadly, there'll be another and even worse period of discipline ahead for them, but the ultimate preservation of the Jerusalem until the coming of Christ has to be brought about. And so here is the part of the prophecy calculated to cause them to lift up their heads and to look to the future and to, by faith, Praise God for what he's going to do. There is a great purpose, even for a diminished temple, even for a mere remnant of the people in Jerusalem only, and some of the countryside immediately round about. Hardly a return of the whole nation, but there's a tremendous purpose for them. They're a link with the future. They hold the flag and keep under the hand of God everything preserved. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, it shall yet come to pass. Some words there supplied by the translators. 
that there shall come people and the inhabitants of many cities. So first of all, as I said, we're looking at the calling of the Gentiles and some interesting information here. This is about um, 30 years uh, before the second return of another remnant that will come with Ezra and then some 10 or 11 years after that will come Nehemiah and the building of the walls. This is really between the two uh, settlements, the first return and the second return. And Jerusalem is now underway. But look at the prediction of Gentiles, pagan nations. There shall come people. And the idea is many people, as the text goes on to say. And the inhabitants of many cities. These are, are not just villages or towns. The word uh, hints at capital cities, major cities, world cities. And verse 21, this will be the character of pagans coming in from cities everywhere. We see it specified that they're pagan nations just a little later. And the inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us go speedily to pray before the Lord. And the word in the Hebrew translated speedily, yes, it can be translated that way, but it means more, um, uh, well, let us go constantly. It's uh, a permanent undertaking that's in mind in the original. Our translators have chosen the speedy uh, ingredient in the word, but the constant nature of this is important. To pray before the Lord, and again, the Hebrew is more elaborate. It says something like to pray before the face of the Lord. It particularly describes intimate counsel seeking. This isn't just a mechanical prayer, or even, dare I say, temple prayer. It isn't liturgy or recitation. This is something, a very intimate communion with God that is being promoted. Let us go speedily or constantly to pray before the very face of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. And the cities say this to one another. So it isn't all coming from Jerusalem. The word goes from Jerusalem and then it goes from city to city. And the idea behind this is this is all voluntary. This is about a conversion process. This is about people who are converted to God among the pagans. And they receive such a feeling and enthusiasm that they witness to others also. This is the Church of Christ which is being predicted in these verses. And uh, so the word of God will go out. And verse 22, yea, many people and strong nations now here is where it's more definite about the Gentiles. Strong nations. By strong nations, the uh, prophet is designating um, empires. Uh, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Medes, the Greeks, in due time the Romans. Strong empire-building nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem 
and to pray before the Lord. It's very interesting in Zechariah, he repeatedly says in Jerusalem. But if we have time, I'll point this out. As you go on through the chapters, the language uh, opens up a little. And he doesn't exactly say, but he is virtually saying from Jerusalem. He's moving to in Jerusalem, from Jerusalem. And that's really what is in mind. And we interpret these verses in the light of, say, Isaiah, chapter 2 and verse 3. For out of Zion shall go forth the Lord and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So the language of the prophets varies. First of all, it's all this is going to happen in Jerusalem. And then you realize that this is incapable of literal fulfillment because all nations are coming into Jerusalem. And as Zechariah goes on to say, people that are so numerous, they cannot possibly be accommodated. It seems contradictory. They'll come to Jerusalem. And then the language changes and you realize that you're looking at something which is figurative. They'll come to Jerusalem, as it were. Everyone will look to Jerusalem. Everyone will journey to Jerusalem. What is happening is the word of the Lord is going out from Jerusalem. Things that happen in Jerusalem will be pivotal to world history and the establishment of the gospel. The events of redemption will take place in Jerusalem. The church will be inaugurated in Jerusalem. The messengers will go out from Jerusalem. But the language, so very often of the Old Testament prophets, is to see it as though it's all happening in Jerusalem, though their very language indicates this is actually a literal impossibility. It's a figure. And that's how we have to understand it. I look at verse 23. How, what an interesting figure this is. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, in those days it shall come to pass that ten men, ten, that's in your mind, should take hold out of all languages of the nations. Well, there are very, very many more than ten languages, as you know. What do the figures mean? Is the ten a literal figure? Well, we read the whole verse and then explain it. Ten men shall take hold out of all languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Well, if we look forward to the perfect fulfillment in the New Testament church, of course, all the first teachers in the New Testament church were Jews. The first Christians were Jews. The word of the Lord was first in Jerusalem. And indeed, it was an apostolic principle to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And this is the fulfillment. The ratio, and this isn't a, a literal figure mathematically, but the ratio in this new order, this new church, of Jews to Gentiles will be something like one Jew to ten Gentiles. The idea is ten men shall take hold of the skirt of a Jew. In other words, the harvest among the Gentiles will be enormous. 
viewed figuratively ten times greater than the harvest among the Jews. But the figure isn't literal. Vastly bigger. And it'll be through Jews at first. They will hold the flame of the gospel. In those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold of all languages of the nations. And uh, they'll say, we will go with you. They'll recognize that God has spoken to the Jewish nation. The scriptures have emerged from them, the promises and the Messiah, and they will go with them. So the Jewish church then merges into the Jewish Gentile Church of Christ, where there'll be far more Gentiles than ever Jews, because it's now international. And that's encapsulated in that 23rd verse. But just to say a little more about those, that 23rd verse, when you note, it's by hearing. Ten men shall take hold, and it's by, they will hear. They'll also observe. It's a matter of testimony. The Jews that are converted at the beginning of the church age, well, their lives will show that they have a true hold upon God. But it's a message that goes out from Jerusalem. And what is powerful is that God is among them. Now just glance on to chapter 9 and we'll proceed quickly. In verse 9, because I'm going to major on things to do with Christ and the New Testament. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Here is Christ's triumphant entry into Jerusalem, predicted, as you can see. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just, righteous, and having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass, He's come to endure humiliation, to be the representative of all, the very meanest and lowest to the richest and most uh, ennobled, and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And that's uh, taken up in the Gospel of Matthew and elsewhere as referring to Christ's triumphant entry into Jerusalem. But look at verse 10. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, which means the opponents of Israel. Ephraim is the largest tribe of the former northern kingdom. And the chariot refers to her enemies who uh, brought her down. And the horse from Jerusalem, its enemy horses that are in mind here, I will cut them off. And the battle bow shall be cut off and speak peace unto the heathen. At the coming of Christ, it's connected with verse 9, there'll be a, a period of non-aggression towards Jerusalem and Judah, and Jews in particular, for the spreading of the gospel. It will resume, but there'll be a peaceful period with the coming of Christ. And peace or reconciliation will be spoken to the 
Gentiles, the heathen, and his dominion, and then words that previously applied to King David are used here. His dominion, Christ's dominion, shall be from sea even to sea and from the river even to the ends of the earth. Well, when that was spoken of David, it referred to the kingdom at the time of David, but now these words are used symbolically to indicate that Christ's kingdom will be worldwide. And in verse 11, as for thee also, as well as for these Gentiles who are going to be included, for you also of Judah, there'll be a way in by the blood of the covenant. I have set forth thy prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water. So that's all predictive of, the, of Christ entering Jerusalem for his final redemptive acts and the uh, peace that will enable it to all be broadcast far and wide and Gentiles and Jews saved by the blood of the covenant. That's the idea of the passage. But I'd like to pass immediately now to chapter 10 and just point out some of these things. I want to uh, cover as much ground as possible uh, so that we see the, the, the key prophecies. Chapter 10, verse 1. Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain, so the Lord shall make bright clouds or clouds of lightning and give them showers of rain to everyone, grass in the field. And then there proceeds a passage which is really about the destruction of Judah's leaders or Israel's leaders now in the New Testament age. Uh, idols have come back. There have been all kinds of superstitions. Verse 2, and the uh, priests who are not particularly mentioned, the term shepherd is used in the passage. All the spiritual shepherds have betrayed the truth and are speaking things contrary to the truth. Verse 3, mine anger was kindled against the shepherds and I punished the goats. For the Lord of hosts hath visited his flock, the house of Judah. And this, uh, these verses are going to be about the uh, bringing down of the princes of Israel, the priests and the leaders, and ultimately the abolition of the priesthood. So that when Christ comes, Zechariah doesn't say this, but there'll be a priesthood of all believers. And there'll be no intercessory priests required. And that's what the verses that open chapter 10 are about. The purging of the priesthood and faithful shepherds will be brought in to the New Testament church. And look at chapter 10, verses 6 to 7. This is interesting too to us. And I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph, and I will bring them again to place them, for I have mercy on them, upon them. And they shall be as though I had not cast them off, for I am the Lord their God, and will hear them. And God will be faithful, 
to the house of Judah all the way to the coming of Christ. And many of them will be called on the day of Pentecost and come to Christ. But then look at verse 7. This is what makes it doubly interesting. And they have Ephraim. But that's Israel. And at the time of the giving of this prophecy, Israel is no more. It's finished. They've all gone into captivity, leaving only a few in their former land. And they of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their hearts shall rejoice as though through wine. Yea, their children shall see it and be glad. Their heart shall rejoice in the Lord. But they're in captivity. Yes, is verse 11, 8. I will hiss for them, or whistle for them, and gather them from wherever they are, for I have redeemed them, and they shall increase as they have increased. So what's this? A time when Judah and Israel will be united once again? Yes, but the time is in the age of the gospel, in the time of Christ. And in this present age that we live in, when such Israelites as will be saved and such Judeans who will be saved will come into the church of Jesus Christ and the predictions of their being joined together will be fulfilled in that way. And that's how to understand the passage. Look at verse 9. Now this indicates, strangely, that although they're all, in, in an earlier chapter, chapter 8, they're all coming to Jerusalem, in chapter 10 they're all being left in their lands. Now there is a sense in which they'll be brought back, but look at verse 9 of chapter 10. And I will sow them among the people. I want these Jewish people, whether they're descended from Israelites or Judeans, I want these Jewish people who are going to be saved among all the nations of the world, and they shall remember me in far countries. Is this the people who were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, who'd come from all the different countries, where they'd been formerly captives and came to Jerusalem and heard the gospel spoken in their own languages to their amazement and many of them were saved and they went back to their countries. God had dispersed them for the purposes of the spread of the gospel and they shall live with their children and turn again. I will bring them again also out of the land of Egypt, out of Assyria, even Gilead and Lebanon, and place shall not be found for them. In other words, they will come to Jerusalem in that they are people who are saved by the message that goes out from Jerusalem. They now look to what comes out of Jerusalem, the gospel of Christ. They look to the apostles and their initial teaching and the word of God. In this sense, they look to Jerusalem, but their calling is to be spread 
throughout the world. And Zechariah seems to be given all that understanding. There will be troubles for them. This isn't going to be all honey. Verse 11, there's uh, afflictions and difficulties and problems, but God will see them through. Now, verse chapter 11, I'm not going to go through because it is an amplification of the withdrawing of the priesthood and the ending of the false teachers of Israel and the priests, the high priests and all who teach falsely. And it amplifies that very considerably. So I want to go on to chapter 12 and verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, which stretcheth forth the heavens and layeth the foundation of the earth and formeth the spirit of man within him. And then verse 2, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. Now this is a picture of all the hostility and opposition which Jerusalem will be subject to uh, even at the time of Christ. But it won't bring them down. It'll be a cup of trembling. It'll be a burdensome stone in verse 3 for all people. There'll be a widespread uh, uh, opposition and hatred to Jerusalem. But God will protect them and the place will be kept in peace for a time for the inauguration of the church and the spread of the gospel before the persecution breaks upon the church. Verse 4, In that day, saith the Lord, I will smite every horse, that is enemy horse, with astonishment and his rider with madness. God will frustrate all the advances of enemies and those hostile towards them, uh, at least for a time. That's the message there. You may ask, why does Zechariah use such um, powerful language to describe hostility, persecution, difficulty? Well, it is necessary. It is largely symbolic language. But when you read Zechariah, chapter 12, for example, it wakes you up to the intensity of the spiritual battle. If you're going to describe the hostility of Satan and his vast number of demons of darkness against Christians and against the Church of Christ, if you're going to describe this in Old Testament language, it's going to be pretty vicious language. And it is. I can point you, for example, to um, chapter 13 and verse 7. Look at this. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered and I will turn my hand upon the little ones and so many will be cut off and die and a third shall be left 
therein. Well, the New Testament tells us that this is about Christ. The shepherd is to be smitten. Well, Christ was smitten, and he allowed himself to be arrested and crucified on Calvary's cross. But this is the demonic attack upon him and upon the church. And down in chapter 14, it becomes increasingly dramatic. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee, for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth. What is that all about? Well, it's symbolic language. And the, these are predictions of Christ and the church. But at the same time, it's interspersed with attacks and viciousness. And will this literally happen to the church and the children of the church? No, it's Old Testament language used to describe a spiritual battle in its fulfillment in New Testament times. But it's important to look at it and to be a little shaken by it because though this will not literally be true of what happens to the church, it will be a, a good figure for the attacks of Satan. He is vicious and the demons of darkness are vicious. And if I go out tomorrow at the beginning of the day relaxed and casual and unthinking and without a prayer of preparation and without readiness for temptation foil temper to strike or bad responses or hostile responses to things that may come to me if I go out completely relaxed to live the Christian life on autopilot well, I shall fall and be brought down and be easy prey for the devil. That's what this powerful language is telling us. It's going to be a battle. Christ will come. Redemption will come. A fountain will be opened for all sin and uncleanness. Wonderful things will happen, interspersed with attacks launched against Jerusalem. The truth against the Lord's people, against the church. It's all in Old Testament language and we have to be ready for it and it makes us much more careful and realistic. We're Christians. We will be defended and helped but we have to be alive to it. And that's... Look just back to chapter 13, the verse that I mentioned. In that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. A fountain. Why? In the years of the temple, the water for cleansing and ablutions and washings has to be laboriously brought into the temple, bowl after bowl, every day. But this is the fulfillment of the symbol. 
when Christ comes, there'll be no more carrying water for symbolic ablutions. There'll be a fountain opened, fountain of his mercy and grace and his shed blood flowing for uncleanness, copious cleansing fountain. Verse 2, it shall come to pass in that day when the fountain is opened and Christ comes that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land and they shall no more be remembered and also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit, the false prophet that is, to pass out of the land. The true church that holds aloft the word of God and believes the Bible, the people of the true church with all their hearts, trust in the Lord and his word, they will not succumb to falsehood and to superstition and to idols or any form of idolatry. And indeed, verse 3, it shall come to pass that when any prophesy then his father and his mother, he's an adult, and he's a phony prophet that begat him, shall say unto him, Thou shalt not live. Remember, this is Old Testament language. And his father and his mother that begat him shall thrust him through when he prophesieth. In other words, they won't believe him as it's fulfilled in the church, and they will be forced to reject him. In, in his, what he believes and what he stands for. There'll be discipline among the people of God. Not only will they be faithful to the Lord and not succumb to the false, but in the right spirit they'll be exercising discipline to keep their coasts clear. And the false prophet will be ashamed. And that's what the rest of that chapter is about and I close with some brief references to chapter 14, the end of the book. And uh, perhaps to read, first of all, verse 1, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee, for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. When, we ask, what is this speaking of? Well, we have to be careful because the prophets do not distinguish, the Old Testament prophets do not distinguish between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. So it could be that on the heels of referring to Christ and the fountain opened, Zechariah could go right to the end of time. But it's very unlikely because in this 14th chapter, there are features which will only be true of the gospel age. He's still on the coming of Christ, first time, and the gospel age. So what is verse 2? For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. Well, all the old commentators, or most of them, write up, through the Reformation, only a few went the other way, 
But the favorite uh, interpretation of the passage is to say, this is AD 70. The idea that this is all to do with the millennium, either before it or after it, didn't come in until as late as the 1820s. But the old way of looking at this is that verse 2 of chapter 14 is all about uh, the uh, AD 70 and the fall of Jerusalem. For I will gather all nations. Objection. It was only Rome. Yes, but Rome was the Roman Empire. Rome was all nations. Rome controlled everything. And everybody concurred with Rome. And it may have been the Roman Emperor, and it may have been the Roman army, but what Rome did, Rome did for all nations. Nobody would defend Jerusalem. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem in battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations. And verse 4 is so intriguing. And his feet, the feet of God, the feet of the Lord, shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof, toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove towards the north, and half of it toward the south, and you shall flee to the valley of the mountains. Well, that's what Christ warned his people to do, in Matthew chapter 22, when you see the desolation of Jerusalem and the abomination in Jerusalem, the Roman armies have encompassed it. Flee for your safety. Don't wait to pack. Don't take anything with you. There'll be no time. Flee. So this was always in the past, the favorite's interpretation. It was predicted in Zechariah. But what about the Lord standing on the Mount of Olives. Is that literal? Or is it figurative language? Well, Zechariah is full of figurative language. And it's clearly figurative. The Lord will be permitting all this to happen. It's his purpose. And while Jerusalem falls, because the Jewish flag has been run down the flagpole by God and the Jewish Gentile New Testament church flag has been hoisted. One age has given way to another. And when that happens, it will be as if God stands and creates a great valley and the influence from Jerusalem, though Jerusalem falls, the city falls, the influence of the gospel is then thrown throughout the world, north and south, east and west. It's a figure. 
Kelvin paints quite a picture of it. He says it is as, as though the spiritual battle, the Romans crushing Jerusalem and God lifting out his people and sending them everywhere around the world for the gospel, it's as though this battle is viewed from above and you see the Lord in his power just splitting the mountain a demonstration of his power as he creates a way of escape and brings mighty and lasting good out of the destruction of Jerusalem well that's the the old interpretation of the passage. It's still all about Jerusalem, but I, I must close. Look at verse 8. And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea. In summer and in winter shall it be. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth one Lord and his name one well that's exactly the same as the fountain opened we're still about Christ and there'll be much evangelism but in AD 70 after only about 30-35 years life of the church there'll be the Roman destruction of the city and that will add such an impetus as there's a massive dispersion of believers from Jerusalem all over the world. And verse 10, what, what do we to make of this? All the land should be turned as a plain. Some people expect these things to be literally fulfilled geographically. A great split in the mountains. Christ somehow standing on the top of it and hills and other mountains becoming all a great plain. But it is symbolic language and it was fulfilled because through the Roman Empire and through their passion for building straight roads and you know all about that radiating out through the whole empire and throughout the world Everything was prepared by God for AD 70 and the great impetus to the gospel and the trade routes and the roads throughout the world. So it was as if everything became a plane. Communications came alive. Everything was orchestrated by God to fit the crucifixion of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And the other verses add to this but I said I would close and I must go all the way down to verse 20 of that last chapter, the end of the book. In that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses or the bridles, the equipment of the horse, holiness unto the Lord and the pots in the Lord's house for the Lord's house is no more. The prophet is speaking figuratively. But the utensils of worship, this is important for us, should be like the bowls before the altar. 
Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord, whether it's horses, whether it's in the house of God, whether it's in the home, for Christians, for the true church, the great watchword will be holiness. In other words, the separation of all that is sacred from all that is profane. Everything in the church is set apart to be suitable for the service of the Lord. So many people are forgetting that these days, and I constantly say this, they're importing the world, the instruments of the world, the rhythms of the world, the chords of entertainment music, everything of the world into the church. Says Zechariah, from the time of Christ, the true church, separation of the sacred for dedication to God. That is what is meant here by holiness, would be the great watchword and the motto. And in that day, there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. We understand that because the book has repeatedly said there'll be Gentiles, there'll be pagans, but now Canaanites. Is it literal? No, of course not. There won't be any Canaanite lifestyle in the Church of God. The characteristic, dedicated, still a Canaanite will not be found in the Church of God. Everybody's changed. Everyone has a new nature. Everyone is looking for the Lord. That's what the prophet means by using that term. And so most of the book is about Christ and his church. And it's calculated and designed, but in veiled language often, to lift up the heads of all those true-hearted Judeans who would live until Christ came. What we are doing, Zechariah was saying to them, what we are doing is keeping the faith and the message and the symbols before the world, calling people out of unbelief and idolatry, and we're called God will enable us and God will keep Jerusalem in place and the nation intact until the coming of Christ. And that's the same for us. We may be a minority today in a day of atheism, but there's a great day coming and we are called to channel to the people the call of God, the call of the gospel, and to keep alive true worship, and to keep an example before the people and a challenge until the great day comes and Christ comes again. See, your purpose is not just to gather out now, it's to hold everything. As the old hymn says, hold the fort, for I am coming. And you keep that in mind. We're holding the faith by the power of Christ until he comes. 
so we can share the spirits of the prophet Zechariah.